Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a production of Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound, and you've joined us for episode two of our dissection of the works of Wes Anderson. This week, I am joined by Allison Shoemaker and Randall Colburn. Would y'all like to introduce yourselves? <laughs> sure. My name is Randall Colburn. I'm a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. I write about horror movies a lot for this site, but uh, what can I say? I have uh, also got a soft spot for the master Wes Anderson. I'm Allison Shoemaker. I'm also a senior writer at Consequence of Sound, and you can also catch me on another Consequence podcast. You can also catch me on another Consequence podcast network show, TV Party, on which I am frequently joined by these two dopes. Oh, and uh, if we're plugging podcasts. Then I got to plug The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound, which Allison is also on, and uh, myself as well. Dom, you are not on it because you are not allowed. You're not You're not a member of The Losers Club. I'm, I'm not cool enough to be a loser, That's ironically true. enough. Yeah. Yeah, it, this, this, is, this has been a recurrent life problem for me over time, <laughs> I have to admit. I'm not even cool for loser status. I'm like the next rung down the ladder. You're like dweeb. Exactly. I've, I've achieved dweeb, at least, by the... <laughs> By the age of 29, I've at least worked up to dweeb. Truly, I've earned my keep in this world. Well, I'm glad you're both joining me today. And before we get into the meat of our conversation, I just want to remind everybody listening at home or wherever it is that you're listening to filmography right now to please download and get leave us a rating on itunes and podchaser both of those help us invaluably you, you can reach out to me personally on twitter at d suzanne mayor and you can also like agree with me about the show and if you want to yell at me about the show you can do that someplace else but this week we're going to talk about Wes Anderson, The Dreamer, because if last week we touched heavily on Anderson's comic stylings and the way in which he presents and stages jokes and how those ping off of some of the bleaker elements of his body of work, this week we're going to get into some of the most whimsical things, and I promise I'm going to use variants of whimsy in this episode (laughs) as little as I possibly can. I assure you both of that. But you can't really get into Anderson without addressing that a little bit. He presents fantasy worlds in a very interesting way, particularly in the three subjects of our discussion this week, 2004's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, 2009's Fantastic Mr. Fox, and this week's Isle of Dogs. One of the really curious things about Anderson, particularly as his body of work has gone on, has been the ways in which he increasingly makes fantasy play off the harshness of reality in a lot of his work because you've gotten away from the relative realism 
of films like Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. And by the time he reaches the life aquatic, he's now building surrealist worlds and making faux biopics about what he imagines Jacques Cousteau was like. (laughs) There's a definite turn where you're going to see Anderson becoming not only a lot more confident in his work, but also a lot more assured in going off on these on-screen and narrative flights of fancy in a really interesting way. So the question that I want to pose to you two to open up discussion a little bit is what sets these films apart in particular as definitive illustrations of the way in which Anderson presents the dream world and as well reality as a dream world? Well, I think that just starting with Life Aquatic, honestly, the first time I saw Life Aquatic, I didn't love it. Um, And I think it was because I was associating Wes Anderson with a certain amount of realism, even though when I look back now, even Bottle Rocket to a degree, I'd say that all of his films exist within fantasy worlds to some degree, the way that the characters interact, the behavior, the... um, the physical worlds that he builds, they're always just a little bit left of center. Uh, Anderson himself says that his work is five degrees moved from reality or some some variation on a quote like that. But well, I think what really made uh, Life Aquatic stand out was, you know, actual animation in it. There was stop motion animation in it. We saw, you know, uh, like the cra- I remember the crabs on the beach was like one of the first times that it really breaks from reality in that sense. And it felt... In, when I first watched it, I thought it felt fairly intrusive. And um, I was like, what is this? Like, this seems a little bit too silly for, you know, what I, I guess, like, what I was always drawn to in Wes Anderson's movies was the darkness in them because there was always such a, a melancholy at the center of his movies. And I was feeling that in Life Aquatic, and I felt like that clashed sort of weirdly and uncomfortably in Life Aquatic when I was watching it uh, when I was younger. Now I love it, but... It was something that I found very striking. And then obviously with Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, I mean, he's leaning full into animating these worlds, puppets, things of that nature that really bring the fantastical elements out. But then he still maintains the uh, very human, compassionate elements of his writing. So, yeah, I mean, it's he's really sort of taking the uh, the visual sort of flair that he had in his early movies and almost, you know, taking it to the nth degree by incorporating the animation. So, yeah, I think that there's, um, something similar that happens in the way that he approaches fact in these films in that the Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox do one sort of similar thing. Life Aquatic obviously does something else, but that it's kind of the reverse and that in the Life Aquatic, uh, information is presented as fact, as scientific fact, that is not anything close to real, but it sounds real. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I may or may not have Googled wild snow mongoose this morning. <laughs> um, and I think that part of what makes the life aquatic so remarkable is that th- there are real animals. There are creatures that they encounter that are absolutely that absolutely exist in our world there's that gorgeous shot of him feeding like a sardine to an orca i think Mm -hmm. but then there are the sugar crabs and the wild snow mongoose and crayon um, pony fish the crayon pony fish and um they're all presented so matter of factly that i think it really increases your engagement with the movie and you don't quite know whether or not there's just a corner of the world you haven't encountered yet or if he's bringing you in and he is bringing you in whereas in fantastic Mr. Fox and I Love Dogs, 
you know, they're obvious. That's an incredibly heightened re- reality. These animals speak. There's the wonderful choice in I Love Dogs to have all of the dog's barks rendered into English. But anytime <laughs> anyone is speaking Japanese, it has to be translated into English for us. And if there's no one around to translate, we don't know what they say. Um, and that, I think, is really cool. But at the same time, the dogs behave like dogs. Um, in Fantastic Mr. Bo- Fox, there's that great moment where the badger and Mr. Fox are facing off in the law office and all of a sudden they start behaving like animals. Or when you see Mr. Fox eat his waffles, right? And all of a sudden he eats like an animal. So it's this incredibly heightened reality in which there are these recognizable, very familiar animalistic behaviors that I think um, make it seem just a little more possible that these foxes live in a tree and they paint landscapes. I love that. And I think that's a really good way into talking about the films of the week, starting with to circle back around Life Aquatic, because I think that point about heightened reality really adds something to the film. Because, Randall, I had the exact same response to it initially that you did. Mm -hmm. I was really put off by it just because, as someone who really loved Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums because I was 12, and of course I did, Life Aquatic was jarring. I remember seeing that at the theater, the one movie theater in Bolingbrook, Illinois, Christmas 2004 and just being confused as hell Mm -hmm. because it was such a stark left turn from everything Anderson had done up to that point. But yet it's completely of a piece with the rest of his work, because I think more than anything, one of the great themes you can draw out of all of Anderson's work to date is the failures of best laid plans and the ways in which the ways we imagine our lives are going to work out collapse and mutate and change with time. And I think that's really drawn out in Life Aquatic in particular because you have somebody who was once great, but you don't experience his greatness firsthand at any point. You get this weird, sad prick version of Steve Zissou who's struggling with middle age and the revelation of his possible son and all of these other very worldly adult issues who's still living in this crayon-colored world that he built for himself as a child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you have these little moments, like especially... So when you see Klaus's nephew near the end of the film trying to kindly take care of Steve Zissou, it's this reminder like Zissou doesn't know how to function in either world because he doesn't know how to be a functional adult as the movie draws into pretty sharp relief early and often. But he also has lost something childlike within himself that he's really coming to grips with throughout the film. Yeah, I think there's this wonderful moment when Steve is giving um, Owen Wilson a tour. I never know whether I should call him Ned or Kingsley. Let's say Ned. When he's giving (laughs) Ned a tour of the boat um, and... They and he's going room by room and you're seeing all of these surrealistic moments that cats everywhere and um, all the scientific experience. But the kitchen is where they have the high tech equipment, all of that. Um, but they get to the bottom of the boat and he says, this is the observation bo- pod. I actually thought it up in a dream. Yeah. And you get this tiny glimpse of what a brilliant mind he must have been and how he could have captured the imaginations of children all over the world. And then there's this sour, sad, frustrated, confused man who still is able to remember that part of himself that thought up that beautiful little observation upon a dream, which obviously then comes back in such an incredible way during the funeral scene. Then you also, um, in that same scene, there's so much character that's built, not only in that, that moment when you see the imaginative side of him, but then uh, Ned asks at the end of the scene, 
so whatever happened with Jacqueline? And he just goes, and then Steve just says, well, she never really loved me, you know? And that's like, that's like years and years worth of like emotional turmoil, probably like bottled up into one line, which is what I've always loved about Wes Anderson is I felt like he's able to take revelations that would otherwise need a 15 minute long scene to emerge from a character. He can somehow make it come out in one line that says so much. Mm -hmm. And this film has a few moments like that where this kind of petulant, childish vulnerability warms its way out of him. Like there's the sequence after he breaks into Jane's room on the Belafonte. Bill Murray ends by with this really understated, lovely, aching line reading of, please don't make fun of me. I just wanted to flirt with you. And it's, I mean, he's a shit. And Zisu is an absolute shit, which I think is something really important to keep in mind in talking about it. He's a shit who earns a lot of empathy by the end, but he's really not a kind man. Well, and the line that comes after that is, I'll send an intern to fix the door, right? Which is the perfect, like, Zisu capper that he just (laughs) thinks you know what's going to solve this problem is I'll just get an intern to do it as opposed to actually reckoning with why it is that she might be upset with him. Well, and I think it returns to that throughout the film where it's other people suffering the consequences of Steve careening through life, which in its own way is a very, very childhood arrested development vision of the world, right? Because a lot of kids, like, Part of the reason kids are generally terrible is because kids think that nobody exists but them. Like, the inner lives of other people are not generally something that rates with you until you, like, achieve a certain maturity at a later age and you realize, hey, everything I do affects the people around me. And that's kind of one of those moments of maturity that's a milestone for most people. And it's something that Life Aquatic frequently seems to argue Steve hasn't achieved as of middle age in a lot of crucial ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I love what you said about the world remaining uh, whimsical and bright and sort of candy colored while he has, you know, curdled in so many ways. And, you know, Anderson himself talked about, I mean, he shot this in Cinemascope, just like he's shot Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. Um, But he also was shooting some of the old film sequences in uh, Ectochrome, uh, reversal stock. And that's how you get that sort of grainy, high contrast, you know, kind of look. And but he was also he was so taken with that that he was he was using that um, later in the film as well. I mean, he wanted to what he was getting from that was sort of that warm, dull yellow kind of uh, color, which very much to me strikes me as, you know, kind of like a lazy sunny day. Um, And I think that he wanted that kind of warmth and that kind of um, off kilter, like left of center uh, look to the movie because he wanted that to permeate and then Steve to be the sort of, you know, existing within that. But then later, like he was shooting in different colors, like when it gets darker, I mean, when the pirates take the boat, he shoots it in blue, you know. So it's uh, I feel like the color really pops and i feel like that's why you know the red caps have become so iconic and everything and the yellow and all you know just everything about the movie really um the colors are so bright like even more so i think than in the other movies and especially because the stock that it was filmed on i think really enhances it to a degree well absolutely and i mean the red caps are straight out of the jacques cousteau playbook granted but i think a lot of those stylistic touches that have really endured over time i mean it, I feel like at times, so let me talk about another consequence of sound pet interest for a minute, but in the same way that Twin Peaks is often misunderstood as like this quirky, eccentric, 
goofy off the wall show when in reality it's this deeply tragic and felt series. Mm-hmm. I feel like Life Aquatic gets written off for the twee and quirk and color of it a lot when in reality I think this might be Anderson's most achingly sad film a lot of the time yeah. because so if we're talking about Anderson in context of dreams this week, Life Aquatic is all about the failure of dreams. And I mentioned the failure of plans earlier, but it's also, it's very much about that feeling of achieving a certain age and realizing your life is not what you wanted it to be on a very broad emotional level. It's also about artistic failure. There's one of the scenes that always gets me is when they're all crowded around on Peshaspata Island watching one of the old Zisu adventures yeah. from what looks like at least 20, 30 years prior. And Klaus just kind of mutters, that's what it used to be like. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, you realize throughout the movie, all of it was kind of facile because one of the great jokes of the Life Aquatic is about how it's a movie about a movie being made, even as it's about everything else. He's constantly asking for light readings, even as he's falling down flights (laughs) of stairs. He never stops being a filmmaker. So even that flashback to a more wistful time is kind of facile, is kind of invented, is a little bit false. And in a lot of ways, it's a movie about a guy who spent his whole life trying to construct some kind of fantasy dream adventure for himself and then watching it kind of cave in around him. Yeah. And I think that what's really neat is, you know, I was reading um, some interviews and and the guardian was writing about life aquatic and they just, the phrase, I love the phrasing they used here. They talk about um, the characters uh, in Anderson movies and then referring to life aquatic, unlike their uh, exotic aquatic counterparts, seem to be not quite synchronized with their environment. And I guess that's something that I always responded to in Anderson was the sense that Max, you know, in Rushmore was so different. He stood out like a sore thumb amongst all of his classmates. I mean, even just the way he looked, the way he dressed, the way he acted. And then we see that, you know, in Royal Tenenbaums, like nobody else in the, like, you know, the characters we follow in life aquatic are all you know, weirdos in the general, in that general world. It's not like everyone dresses like uh, Owen Wilson's character in, in um, Royal Tenenbaums. You know, they, they all embody these really strange, weird characters in a world that isn't as weird as they are, like the people at least. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and then in Life Aquatic, what I love is, um, is, you know, the idea that we, that, you know, because Steve doesn't really fit in, like, you know, you said about this, the world really exists and it's still the one that, you know, he conjured up, but there is something kind of um, that's dulled about it and that the characters don't look ever look like they really fit into that world, just like the animals and the aquatic creatures that we see. The way that they're animated is so, like, inspires such sort of uh, imagination and wonder that they feel like they're too beautiful for that world in a lot of ways, too, mm-hmm. you know? And so there's a lot, there's a great sense that we, you know, what's remained pure in a lot of ways is the is the underwater wildlife, and we haven't, you know, <laughs> remained as pure. Well, I think that's really interesting because what ultimately these people do have in common, which most of them seem to have forgotten, um, but are reminded of by the end of the film, unless they're dead, is this remarkable respect for and awe for the natural world. Yeah. And the thing that unites them finally after this incredible trauma they go through is that gorgeous sequence where they finally see the jaguar shark and i just love that image where everybody reaches out and puts their hands on steve and you can sense that there's been a shift and that something has been 
rejuvenated. Something also has been lost, but something has been rejuvenated and they found a way to reconnect with the reason that they're all there to begin with. And, um, and that I think is another kind of dream, I guess. I think we all want to be able to remember why it is that we are the way that we are. And it's pretty hard to tap into that when say you all of a sudden can't watch television for fun anymore. Or like you can't remember the last time you went to see a movie because you wanted to and not because you had to write about it, for example. Um, That's a, or when yeah. you spend your whole life on a boat and it suddenly becomes about making the next great movie and not finding the wild snow mongoose. So to that exact point, in one of his interviews with Matt Zoller Seitz about this film in particular, Anderson kind of talks about how, and I'm quoting here, Zisu spread too thin and he's not really that interested in his subject. He's more interested in making a film about something than he is in the thing itself. That's the comic idea of him to some degree, but it's the sad thing about him. It's his weakness Mm -hmm. because he's lost that capacity, not just for creativity, because he seems to be creatively bankrupt by the start of the film as much as anything, but he's also lost that capacity to really be overwhelmed, at least up until that ending. Because there's that one great visual gag where I think it's when he goes to beg Eleanor for money that he sees some kind of chameleon or lizard crawling around on his hand and he just brusquely flicks it off. (laughs) And it's funny, but it's also kind of this visual reminder that there's no magic in the world for Steve anymore. He's figured out what it is and by the time the film picks up with him, you're picking up with him at the end of a very long decline. Like he, I think he says in that same scene to Eleanor at one point when he's apologizing, I know I haven't been at my best this past decade. (laughs) And that's a great piece of dialogue, but it also kind of gets at the heart of him. Like he's constantly been trying to construct this reality for himself where the world is exactly what he wants it to be. I mean, that's pretty much the artist's conundrum in a nutshell, but he's starting to wake up to the reality that he is just a participant in the cosmic game or whatever you want to call it, like the rest of us, and he's in no way exempt. One of the things that I find so moving about Anderson, and this ties into everything that you're saying, is, you know, emotion. And this also ties into the idea that all of his films exist in a certain kind of fantasy world. But but the the great idealism of of Wes Anderson, I feel like, is just the the deep sense of humanity and the the willingness of people deep down to forgive and to connect. There's such a we complicate connection so much in life and we complicate what it takes to forgive or reconnect or rediscover um, because we get so, you know, consumed by bitterness or anger or resentment. And sometimes that that anger and resentment is very much deserved. I mean, we definitely see that in, in Royal Tenenbaums. But the capacity for forgiveness in what Anderson's movies, there's it's so simple when you finally stumble upon it. Um, like, you know, I just the part I always find very moving, even though I mean, it's not one of the it's not like, you know, um, the Jaguar shark scene by any means, but is uh, Steve and Alistair Hennessy uh, played by Jeff Goldblum. Like, you know, the whole movie, like Steve hates him so much and you could see why, because Hennessy's kind of full of shit, but he's not expressly cruel. I don't think, I think he's just kind of, he's kind of an asshole, but you know, in the end of the movie, it really doesn't take much for the two of them to reach that level again and be friends again. It just takes an acknowledgement of what they share. And there is so much of that 
in Anderson's movies that a lot of wounds can be healed if we just look each other in the eyes and are honest with each other. And we see that in Tenenbaums as well, um, which we'll discuss next week. But, um, but you know, there's I laugh when I watch that. I find it beautiful. But, I mean, it's, it, it's what overcomes the cynic inside me. I don't do a lot of sentimental or heartwarming kind of movies, but it always really affects me in Anderson because he, he shows how simple it could be to mend broken bridges and all the complications that we throw in the way of doing that. And his, his characters tend to do it in the end, and I find that really beautiful that they're able to do it. I mean, I look at Rushmore, and one of the scenes that's always made me cry in Rushmore was when he gives him the, the pins, you know? And he's like, do you want punctuality or do you want attendance, you know? And that that's the simple gesture. That's all it takes to mend that friendship, you know, is just reach out and do something kind. So, and I, I love that about, like, Steve has, has built up so many walls throughout his life that he's alienated everybody. But bringing them all back in, in the end, isn't really hard. It just takes that sense of perspective. Because, you know, when he sees the jaguar shark in the end... You know, I think, I don't know, maybe you guys disagree with me, but I've always seen there being a lot of different layers to the I wonder if he remembers me line. Mm-hmm. And I guess like I read a, a piece recently where that line was interpreted as the things that I've built up in my head, the because the jaguar shark represents the bitterness and the anger that he's developed at his own career and the things that have taken everything away from him. But then when he sees the jaguar shark, it's like, I wonder if it remembers me. And he remembers how small he is in the grand sort of uh, part of the world. And that all we have is what we have around us. And the things that we obsess over don't obsess over us. And that to me is like a very powerful. And that's sort of the revelation he needs to sort of reach out to those who are within his reach. So I feel similarly about um, the line that that gets me that I feel like is sort of similarly vast is... um, uh, do you ever wish you could breathe underwater? Oh, yeah. Where it's this simple question where, of course, the answer is yes, but knowing that there's someone out there that wishes that, because you don't ask the question if you don't wish it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, bridges this enormous gap, both of space and of time, of decades, that I think is, I just think that that is um, incredibly sad and profound and beautiful. And also really cool, because who doesn't wish, I wish I could breathe underwater. Like right now, I wish I could breathe underwater. That'd be sweet. Well, and they even get that little moment of sharing that oneness that you're driving at, and then a fucking helicopter crashes. But you know, for a second, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I actually think, so this point that you're both making about interconnection and about spanning distances of all literal and metaphorical kinds... That's a great way into Fantastic Mr. Fox Mm -hmm. because Fantastic Mr. Fox is about a guy who almost destroys his whole ecosystem through hubris and then only barely pulls himself back from the brink. So if you want to talk about literal distance, he ends up displacing an entire natural ecosystem (laughs) and driving Michael Gambon to madness by the end of the film. But I also think there's something to be said for kind of the childlike notion of, well, all my friends are always going to be all my friends. All the people who love me are always going to be all the people who love me. And then kind of the harsh reality of being slapped across the face as you age and realizing this is not how the world works. The world does not revolve around me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think with Fantastic Mr. Fox, we're going from the Henry Selleck-aided 
claymation fantasies of life aquatic to full-blown animation. So there's a definite change in medium, but I also think, if anything, it only unleashes Anderson's capacity to imagine an entire world. Because I think in a lot of ways, Mr. Fox is, as much as anything, a window into how Anderson sees the world around him. Mm -hmm. Because he's building flights of fancy, but the world is still deadpan. Like even animals still talk like Wes Anderson characters. Mm -hmm. They are just, as you mentioned earlier in the show, Allison, occasionally they turn into actual animals. Yeah. Man, the line that, well, when I was rewatching fantastic Mr. Fox, the line that knocked me on my butt that I still remember. And I feel like it's such a pure form of, of Anderson's aesthetic mixing with, uh, this use of animals and this use of animation is when, um, uh, Mrs. Fox like says to Mr. Fox, uh, you know, why are you like this? And then he just says, deadpan, he's like, because I'm a wild animal. <laughs> and it's like, that's something like Royal Tenenbaum would have said, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I love that in that moment because it's so true on so many levels. You know, it's, it's about, it's about like the failure of man. It's about like unchecked Hebrews, you know, it's about, or unchecked privilege. And it's also just about, Hey, I am actual wild. animal. <laughs> like, it's very literal too. Which yeah. I love. And I, abs and I do love like all of the animal touches, but I do definitely think they're in service of something much deeper. So to take filmography to a very personal place for like 30 seconds, and I do promise it. we won't stay there for long. I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox first in 2009, and that is a weird movie to watch when you're watching your parents' marriage deteriorate Oof. like oh. I was. But I think there's a lot of insight in there into, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week, how Anderson has always examined the inner lives of deeply selfish men, particularly in times of extreme crisis. And Mr. Fox is very much within that vein because he's this person who literally the only thing that drives him, I mean, he's arguably more irredeemable than a lot of Anderson protagonists because where Royal Tenenbaum wants forgiveness, where Zisu wants some kind of a sense of inner peace or whatever have you, Mr. Fox just destroys everything because he misses being a thief. Mm -hmm. Because being a thief made him feel young. He wanted to feel young and virile again, and he made the oldest mistake in the book trying to chase that feeling after his time had come and gone. He's a pretty unsympathetic protagonist in a lot of crucial respects. And I think animation as much as anything lets Anderson get away with that in a way where he would be borderline an intolerable cad <laughs> if this was a live action movie with someone behaving the way that Mr. Fox as played by George Clooney does in this film. But well it's funny you say yeah. that because I think um, we have that protagonist and a brother Ratha, right? Like there are, there's a lot of overlap between Mr. Fox and Everett. They just, they're, they're really similar and the, the, Romantic relationships are really similar. Yeah. The uh, ostracizing of former allies, that's really similar. Um, certainly it's a chase movie. So I, I just think the similarities there are super interesting. Um, but I also think that his um, desire to go back to thieving, right, to get right with his own nature is sort of interestingly subverted because it all comes about because he doesn't want to live the way that foxes live. So he comes out of the hole and into a tree that presumably he also really decides to buy because it's close to those farms. But it's because he doesn't want to feel poor. He doesn't want to feel like he lives in a hole like a fox does. And the first thing he does when he gets out of that hole is he goes back to the truest part of his nature. And I think to the exact point of dreams in context of this too, 
that's that's the ultimate American dream in a grand sense. It's outlive your means furiously with little <laughs> regard for what might be, become a consequence of it because that's your right. Because that's the thing. There's a sense of entitlement to Mr. Fox that I think the film draws into really interesting relief time and again where – I mean, through the wild animal excuse, but also through his continued misconduct. I mean, after being displaced initially, after watching his family's shiny new tree be destroyed, his immediate reaction is to start more elaborately robbing these farmers <laughs> as a restorative response. So there is something deeply, deeply selfish in him that is a realization of the Anderson character. But it also speaks to going back to the whole divorce point just once more. There's something really interesting in the mentality of watching people who try to outlive their means, but who also like just genuinely believe they deserve more. And this is a particularly male thing, especially in this country, but the world at large, I would argue the idea that you deserve more because why don't you deserve more that where you're divorced from actual merit, you're divorced from actual effort. You just believe in pure manifest destiny. You believe in why should my life just be good when it could also be the best life in the world. And I think the lesson that's really drawn out is trying to chase someone else's vision of a best life or your own lunatic version of a best life <laughs> will only lead to ruin. It's funny that the, when you frame it like that, then I can't help but see the similarities to Bottle Rocket. Because um, one of the things I've always loved about Bottle Rocket was Dignan's insistence that he is a criminal <laughs> when he's like really bad at it. And um, and then and the way that Anthony just sort of goes along with it because he just wants to be a good friend. And uh, but that whole concept of I, des you know, I deserve to it's like leaning into an identity that isn't quite you anymore. But it's something that you aspire that you think that you want. You you know, that's kind of what you've been conditioned to want. And that's like that's sort of uh, why I've always as much as I love Anthony and Bottle Rocket. Like Dignan to me is always sort of the standout character because he wants so badly to be something that he will never be. And it's not exactly the same in Fox, but, you know, there is that sense of just striving against identity to a degree and um, and the ways in which that we thrash against um, perhaps our true nature or the or, you know, our believed nature, the things that we know are best for us versus the things that we truly desire fantasy against reality yeah absolutely and i think it also spiritually ties fantastic mr fox in a really cool way to the role doll source material because doll always wrote adult stories for children i mean that's that's the cornerstone of so much of his body of work and i think mr fox expands on it in a really interesting way by telling a very specific story drawn out of a much larger parable yeah i think um I don't know. I guess like, yeah, I, I, what's so, what was so strange? I love Roald Dahl when I was young and it was always because I always, I didn't feel like I was being talked to like a child. And I think that that's so true of Wes Anderson too. I mean, the thing is there is something, there's a childlike uh, energy to a lot of his movies. I mean, I responded to uh, Rushmore and Ball Rocket when I was very young. You know, those were movies that made sense to me even as a child because the imagery just really, I think, strikes in your, it's, it, it buries itself in your head in the same way that, something in an animated movie might, and that's, just, you know, that points to Anderson's obsession with composition and creating like, you know, the kind of tableaus that stick in your head. And, um, and I think that the way that he was so committed to, well, he, it's kind of funny because he, he really kind of bristles against in interviews 
the concept that he was writing a Wes Anderson movie in the guise of a Roald Dahl. He's very much like, no, I was trying to capture the spirit of Roald Dahl. I very much believe he did. But I think that he's undercutting the fact that, you know, <laughs> Roald Dahl would not write characters who speak like this. Well, and in general, Anderson's oddly cagey about talking about like the emotional end of his filmmaking mm-hmm. process. He's obsessed with talking about form, but tends to... I've noticed step around or just get a little bit more demure when people start trying to really investigate like his themes and where they come from. Yeah. So there's a ceiling for how much we'll ever know. But yeah, this movie, I mean, in one sense, it moves like a great Anderson movie, but in another, it's arguably the most screwball of all of his films. I mean, it moves at times at the clip of like a great Preston Sturgis comedy where it's just punchline after punchline layered within one another. I mean, it's a dense piece of comedy writing as much as anything. If in that sense, though, I feel like that's the one one of the places where I struggle a bit with Fox's. I like the quiet moments in Anderson, and there's not a lot of those here. And I think that that's purposeful because he did want to make a movie for children. And um, of course, he wanted to make a movie for children and adults. But, you know, he's like, well, I'm adapting Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl is for children. And I want kids to really be able to tap into this movie. And so I wanted there to be. Uh, that's the thing is, even though you're, I was, I know I'm watching a children's movie, but I long for sort of the, um, those moments of ennui and that quiet and that sort of despair and that weight of, uh, time, because that's just the thing that I always love about his movies. But then at the same time, (laughs) that's not, you know, you don't, that's not what he was going for there. And you can't force that onto a children's movie. Exactly. But at the same time, I think, um, the those quiet moments and Mr. Fox hit maybe even harder than they usually do because there are so few of them. Like sure. I think about the scene where Mrs. Fox slashes him across the face or the scene they have later where she says, I love you, but I never should have married you. Yeah. Like those are God, they just hit really, really hard. They do, because I think going back to it as kind of a parable for male hubris, but hubris in general there's a real pain and poignance to that scene where she looks him in the eye and goes, we all die unless you change. Yeah. Because it's the idea the world was fine until you ruined it. Mm -hmm. And there's something really harsh about, I mean, in life kind of realizing that you have the power to ruin someone else's life in a broad sense, but also in context in this film in particular, that, you will destroy someone's life for no better reason than because you were mildly dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. Not to tag on Twin Peaks again, but it's sort of the the inverse of change your hearts or die, um, which is kind of lovely. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how many things David Lynch and Wes Anderson have in common, but that <laughs> seems to be one of them. Um, I just need to put this out in the universe. It's a little off topic, but I don't care. Um, I'm a big World Doll fan, and I think that Anderson is such a good match for his source material because he's unafraid of like really ugly aches, but then he dresses them up in these like lovely whimsical trappings. Um, So now all I want is a Wes Anderson Matilda. It's been a long time since we had the first Matilda. The first one has its charm, but it makes some really big missteps too. So I want Wes Anderson to do Matilda. And I'm going to go ahead and suggest Marseille Martin from Blackish to play Matilda. So please, universe, make it so. That would be really great. Do you want it to be animated or... Oh, I don't care. Whatever he wants. (laughs) He's the dreamer. Well, and like, I think that, and I love the way that Anderson works with children too when he does. And um, I feel like Ash might be one of my favorite Wes Anderson characters because he captures sort of the um, tortured, Mm -hmm. self-obsessed teen so well. Like, God, the line that just slayed me when he's, Agnes is talking to Christofferson during the science lab. And then she's like, you're supposed to be my partner. And she's like, and she's like, I am. And he's like, no, you've betrayed me. <laughs> like, 
He's like so serious and no, so angry. The precise pin he puts on it, like not to correct, but I think the actual line hits it, that note even harder. It's, no, you're not. You're disloyal. Oh, you're disloyal. That's yeah. what it was. And yeah. there's just, there's something so petty and yet so cutting about a line like, no, you're disloyal. Yeah. I just, I love it so much because it really gets at how abrasive being a kid can be sometimes. But if we're going to talk about animation with heavily adult themes, that's as good a way in any as the most recent of the Anderson releases, Isle of Dogs, which is like Fantastic Mr. Fox captured via stop motion animation, but which tonally is a very different movie. Mm-hmm. I want to make one quick point, which is that I don't think you can drop the F off of, of when you say Isle of Dogs or you miss the pun. So it is not Isle of Dogs. It's Isle of Dogs. That's really important. I'm, I'm sorry my Midwestern dialect is stepping on jokes. Just, I apologize. Well, here's the thing. We Midwesterners, we also love puns. So come on, get with it. You got to have both. You can have the Midwestern twang, but you've got to hit the pun. It's so true. I love dogs. Yeah, I also love dogs. <laughs> there it is. I, I'm, I'm so upset. If he's accomplished nothing else with this movie... He's going to have a lot of people doing that bit. <laughs> yeah, that, that bit's going to live on forever. So we move into one of definitely the more eccentric Anderson movies. And this is kind of hard to unpack because for one, for the sake of full disclosure, Randall and I both just watched this like 12 hours ago. Mm-hmm. And for another, there's not the same ink on Isle of Dogs as far as inspiration and motivation goes that there is on a lot of Anderson's other work, just by dint of the fact that as previously mentioned for one, Anderson is always a little bit off kilter when it comes to commenting on like the depths and the thematic implications of a lot of his work, but also because this is a movie that's really going to be wrestled with in a lot of different respects for a while to come, I think. And I think it building fantasy out of a dystopic version of Tokyo is as good a place as any to start. Because not only is this a movie about sentient dogs, but it's also a movie that uses sentient dogs to draw some pretty harsh allegories to modern politics. Yeah, um, I have some conflicted feelings about Isle of Dogs, um, which for the most part I really enjoyed. It's visually stunning. The performances are as charming as you'd expect given the cast. I just like died and went to heaven when assistant scientist Yoko Ono showed up, voiced (laughs) by Yoko Ono. Like that just made my day. But mm, outside of the cultural stickiness, uh, which I am in no particular authority on, um, but Justin Chang in particular has written some really interesting things about this. And I urge people to specifically seek out film critics with a sense of what is going on culturally with Isle of Dogs. I also just, I find it very confusing that at the one, on the one hand, we've got this anti-totalitarian situation happening. There is no question who is wrong here. Um, the parallels are pretty thick to most societies where people are gaslit and told what to believe and forced into a certain position and taunted with um, unreasonable threats and where problems are just shipped off to be killed as opposed to actually dealt with like it's not hard to draw parallels to our current situation but at the same time it's about a group of dogs where the one who wants to be free gets his happy ending when he has a master And that just, like, it's the happy ending because it's a dog movie, and he's, again, obeying his true nature, right, as opposed to rejecting it. But 
But it's very odd to have things come out of the mouth of Brian Cranston's character. Chief. Chief. And that are along the lines of, I, no master commands me. I don't bark because you tell me to bark. I don't fetch. I bite. And to have the happy ending be um, willing subservience. That would be a totally normal happy ending in almost any other movie, but because there's this other political undercurrent running through the, basically the people half of the movie, it, there's some cognitive dissonance there that I'm really struggling with. Am I the only one? I hadn't really thought of it that way. And that's interesting. And I think, I think part of the muddle that's happening with a lot of the dialogue around the movie, at least at this stage, is come from the fact that you have a filmmaker who's never been explicitly political in his work who seems to have taken a hard turn into that with his last couple features. Because we'll talk about this more with the Grand Budapest Hotel next week, but I felt like Grand Budapest in a lot of respects was the first time when the Wes Anderson unreality that we talked about a little bit earlier in the episode, that unreality coming into direct conflict with not only history, but real history and with the legacies of that history and grappling with a lot of things that Anderson as a filmmaker has never really tried to address before. And I feel like Isla Dogs in much that same way is grappling with some really angry material that even if I don't think he hits the nail on the head all the time, I think Anderson has a genuine interest in trying to engage with thoughtfully. Now, the success of him doing this can certainly be called into discussion and question, and will be, but I think there is something to be said, if for nothing else, than just Anderson's capacity to try and empathize with increasingly experiences that aren't his on screen. Because that's always been the big Wes Anderson knock, right? Is that Wes Anderson makes, quote unquote, a Wes Anderson movie, Mm -hmm. and that's that. Well, I think, you know, a lot like with Life Aquatic, where you both had a very specific reaction when seeing it when it first premiered, and your opinion has evolved over the years, I would imagine that the conversation around Isle of Dogs is going to continue to change. And I'm looking forward to learning more about it as I see the way other people react. I'm looking forward to seeing it again because I also have only seen it once, even though it was like a week ago. And I think that we will learn more about the film and how we experience the film as we return to it, which is one of the great things about Anderson's movies. Um, But one thing that doesn't require a ton of processing is how fucking gorgeous this thing is, right? It's just beautiful. And I was really struck by all of the really bold colors. I'm so used to seeing browns and tans and pastels in Anderson's movies that with the exception of like the red caps and a couple other really poppy things here and there I was really struck by how vibrant some of the colors are in this thing well and I think that's really interesting because this is his biggest excursion into full-blown fantasy to date Mm -hmm. arguably because whereas Mr. Fox still it's a diorama claymation world but it still very much represents a lot of the Wes Anderson pet interests. Mm -hmm. A lot of mid-century American and English color schemes, a lot of those like Anglophile aesthetics that inform so much of his work at large. And also also the the foxes like live like humans. Totally. They operate like humans, whereas the dogs here do not. You could picture Margot Tenenbaum living in that tree like really easily. And in fact, I think if she could fit in there, she would probably snap it up, right? (laughs) Like somebody would snap that up. Yeah, and I guess uh, that that's, that's the thing that I really enjoyed about Isle of Dogs was, um, did I say it right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, was that they really did, you know, like the first time we meet a lot of the dogs there, there's a bag that's been dropped on the ground and they're all approaching it. And well, there's like two opposing packs of dogs. And then one of them says, 
they're about to fight each other, and then and then <laughs> then the 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 sort of Anderson intellect comes out and is basically like, before we fight, why don't we open and see if it's something worth fighting for? And they open and it's a bunch of like rotted food, and they're like, it's worth it, and then they fight. And um and I guess I just love the ways in which I mean, obviously he was very much inspired by uh like those old Rankin Bass TV specials. He said that those were kind of his first introduction to stop motion when he was young, and it's what really ignited his interest in those things. And, uh, and you can, and then also you, there's so much that you can be taken from, you know, the history of cartoons, even just like Looney Tunes. I mean, whenever the dogs fight in mm-hmm. Isle of Dogs, they disappear into a cloud. Um, and it just, the limbs keep popping, you know, like keep popping out as like boom, snap, bow, bow, you know? Well, and in the last episode, I talked a little bit about how often Anderson has talked about Peanuts and Charles Schultz mm-hmm. as being a huge influence on his work. And I think you see that a lot of the time here, especially in how he imagines human dog relationships and a lot of the winking references made to those throughout. It's very Peanuts because it's a cartoon with echoes of absolute realistic sadness popping up through it. And sometimes they're more than echoes because by the time you get to the halfway mark, Isle of Dogs has introduced um, dog concentration camps and dog revolutions and ending that if it wasn't animated would resemble the climax of White God a lot more (laughs) than I was ready for an Anderson movie to resemble. But at the same time, it has those moments of Anderson looseness, but I think it's much more of a piece with again, Grand Budapest Hotel than with either of the films we've talked about so far in a Mm -hmm. lot of respects, because it has these much darker thematic underpinnings. I mean, his vision of Tokyo 20, 30 years in the future is of it as this dystopic nightmare overrun by filth. And that was one thing that struck me to the point of that garbage scene When they open up the bag, there are stop-motion maggots crawling around on this food. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because Anderson has dabbled in sometimes grisly violence before in both Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic especially. But it's the first time where I can remember watching an Anderson movie and being like really repulsed by something. Mm -hmm. And that's not a feeling I generally associate with his work. That's not a sensation he generally deals in. And I think that's a really interesting shift for him. Yeah, I think um, this is the first Anderson movie where I ended up thinking a lot about how it would smell. (laughs) You know, you do Anderson plays with the senses a lot, but that's not one. I don't think often about how the Royal Tenenbaums would smell. I certainly don't think about how Rushmore would smell other than like autumnal. Generally, they would all smell kind of like fall. But here, even the jokes get a little bit gross. Like I really, one of my favorite gags in this thing was when Chief says, you make me sick and then pukes right next to himself, yeah. right? That like, that was a regular yuck fest. And I guess I mean that yuck in both senses. Um, because yeah, you could really like smell it on Trash Island, right? Well, it's just wild that when you think back to a lot of his his movies are built around um, very, like the kind of settings that you would want to go to. I mean, the Royal Tenenbaum House, uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, even the the beach in Moonrise Kingdom, I think back on all the time. There's something very idyllic and lovely about that. Mm-hmm. Um, even Rushmore Academy is the kind of place I wish I went to school. It's, you know, but then this movie primarily takes place on Trash Island. <laughs> and so it's just kind of wild to see, yeah, like Wes Anderson rolling around in the dirt a little bit, but I think that's, you know, suitable for the dogs. <laughs> well, and, and even when they catch the magic train, they end up going through like a chamber of horrors, yeah. you know? <laughs> Well, and there's there's this note of, again, real world downturn hanging over it, because when the film gets around to playing out the origins of Trash Island, it's this place that was created by decades of just environmental disaster by earthquakes and volcanoes 
and it's a place built out of the worst things that happen to people, and we send our dogs there. And it creates this really sad, interesting tone that he's never quite struck in any of his work, where it feels the movie feels exhausted in the way that all Anderson movies feel exhausted to some end or another. But a lot of it is, again, in those those muted grays and browns and beiges that so much of the visual palette is made up of. But also in the fact that it feels sparse. It feels open, and I think even more so, it feels empty in a way that I don't know Anderson's movies have ever felt. Because one of the Wes Anderson hallmarks is movement, life, things to pick out of every single frame, meticulous Mm -hmm. mise-en-scene. And then you have this movie here full of these broad, open, hopeless spaces. Mm-hmm. You get, you still get some of it when, whenever we're hanging out with one of the humans, right? Like I think about all the cat decor. Um, I think about Tracy Walker's like investigative board. Um, like that seems very familiar, very Anderson. Maybe not quite as pleasant, but um, it looks very familiar. Yet there is the what I loved about it too, though, was. Uh, sort of Anderson's empathy and capacity for forgiveness again was on display here. Um, I won't spoil it too much, but just uh, there is a a villainous character who does have a moment of redemption that I really did not expect. But that's sort of the thing about Anderson is is, it isn't hard for a character to, um, at least to some degree, redeem themselves in a small way. But having said that, it's only in the last two movies I feel like where Anderson has had characters who were explicitly evil, you know, mm-hmm. and um, because in a lot of his earlier movies, like even I always go to Magnus and, and Rushmore because he's like the typical school bully. But then there's such like a lovely turn that he has when all he <laughs> wanted to do was be in one of Max's plays. Always wanted to be in one of your plays. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, you know, there's always the ability and like even Eli Cash, you know, in Royal Tenenbaums. There's always this capacity that no matter how far someone has fallen or how mean someone has been to you, it's really not that hard to to reconcile if you can just set aside all the bullshit. But then um, but then there is another character in Isle of Dogs who is, you know, purely expressly evil. And um, and then same with Grand Budapest, which you'll discuss next week. And um, but that to me, I feel like that just signals sort of a the the sense that. Anderson is dealing with sort of some new themes now and commenting on some new things that are that are much darker and that mm-hmm. go beyond because you know some of it is so much of his early work is about is very much about emotion it's about human emotions it's about you know um grief and longing and uh forgiveness and and families and things like that so in these later movies they're you know he's touching on broader political ideas and I think that you know there does need to be a villain in that case We've got an expressly evil character in Fantastic Mr. Fox, too. Oh, yeah, I guess like, you're right. Terrifying. I for, well, yeah, but at the same time, that was from the book. And I uh, and I feel like with, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess you're right. It's just like, I think I very much associate sort of um, uh, Anderson with this whole concept of there are no real bad guys, you know? Mm-hmm. But Well, and I do think, Allison, you bring up an interesting point, Um, Bean is literally described by Bill Murray's Badger on screen in Mr. Fox as possibly the scariest man currently living. (laughs) But at the same time, I think there is like a cartoonishness to his evil. You never believe that Bean is going to win the day over Mr. Fox. Whereas Edward Norton's Nazi captain in Grand Budapest Hotel kills your beloved protagonist. 
Sorry for for your spoilers, guys. <laughs> and here in Isle of Dogs, you I, I keep saying it Midwestern, and now I'm really locked in on it. I'm sorry, I think sorry, it's because everyone. you hate dogs. I do. I'm I'm purposely trying to sidestep saying that I love them as a deliberate narrative choice here. <laughs> he doesn't. He loves dogs, guys. I do. I do love dogs, but um, much like John Cusack before me, I must. But I, I'm so ashamed of myself. I'm sorry, everybody. But regardless, I do think I'm gonna need a minute. <laughs> Just own it. Just own it. Own it. Uh. I, I do take ownership of this. But I do think, to Randall's point about politics playing in, you have this tension here where the dream, the fantasy reality dichotomy of so much of Anderson's work is being drawn almost into question in a way, where he's trying to wrestle with these themes of can the Wes Anderson world exist in the face of cold, hard reality? Yeah. And I think these past two films in particular have really drawn onto that point where you're calling into question whether whether people are going to be okay, whether the dogs are going to make it. And mm-hmm. especially with some of the places that this film goes by its end, there's this idea that it will be okay, but maybe not in the way you hoped, in the way you dreamt, in the way you wished that it would all turn out. Mm-hmm. And I think we can get into that more, especially when we're talking about the performances, but you have a lot of these characters drawing these portraits of people who there's a ceiling for how happy they're ever going to be in all of these films. And I think that's this really interesting commonality between them. But before we jump into that part of the discussion, we're going to take a very short intermission break here on filmography. I'd like to remind you again, listening at home or wherever you might be, to please shout me out at D. Suzanne Mayer on Twitter to engage with both me and filmography on the Facebook page for Consequence Sound, facebook.com slash Sound, appropriately enough. You can find the site at large on Twitter at Consequence. Um, rate and review filmography on iTunes and Podchaser, please. You have no idea how much that helps us. I know every podcast you've ever listened to is begging you to make a rating and leave a review and all of that good stuff, but I'm dead serious. You have no idea how much it helps. But we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with the second half of our discussion about Wes Anderson, the dreamer, here on Filmography. Welcome back to Filmography. If you're somehow just joining us in the middle of the podcast, (laughs) we are talking about Wes Anderson, the dreamer, as seen through The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Isle of Dogs. And since we spent the first half talking about movies, we're going to start breaking them into finer pieces now. And as is the case with so many of Anderson's films, there's really nowhere else to start but with performances, because the way in which certain actors deliver Wes Anderson performances are as much a part of his whole aesthetic as any of the stylistic choices, arguably. And to start, I mean, if we've been talking about Life Aquatic a bunch, I feel like we'd be remiss not to jump right in, right into the pool. (laughs) Kill me. I I should be taken out back and excommunicated. So, but... (laughs) I feel like we have to talk about Bill Murray to start and his performance as Steve Zissou in particular, because while he pops up in both of the animated features we've been talking about, Zissou is one of the most memorable Anderson performances, period, Mm -hmm. I would argue. And he's a fine illustration as much as any other Anderson performance of the Wes Anderson character, because Zissou is this interesting addition to his work in Rushmore and then his more minor work in Tenenbaums thereafter, where he was experimenting with this 
sort of sad-eyed delivery of jokes that has become a latter-day Bill Murray standard in a lot of respects. I mean, he's given more iterations of the Rushmore Lost in Translation performance Mm -hmm. in recent years than he's given as a comedian like he was known for for decades before that, which is a really interesting shift to begin with. But with Murray... In Life Aquatic in particular, you see him really draw out that dramatic end where he looks physically beaten down Mm -hmm. a lot of the film. And I think it's a really interesting choice for him to be this guy who looks like he's kind of sad-eyed shuffling around to draw the Peanuts comparison again like Charlie Brown. Zisu, in a lot of respects, is like an old, sad, bitter Charlie Brown where he's just kind of perpetually stoned and trudging through his own life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the best, I think... But the, and then there's such a restraint, though, which is, I think, what makes that's what really uh, helped Bill Murray, like, enter into this period of his career was that when he started doing dramatic work, he was like, I'm not going to like cry and, um, you know, play roles where I'm like openly lamenting and weeping. He very much he's able to summon and, and exude a sort of a really quiet, restrained melancholy. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a sense of ennui more than it is like direct sadness. Like the world is, is falling down around him. And like, and like one of the best examples and one of my favorite moments in the entire movie is the way he processes his first conversation with Owen Wilson, uh, with Ned and, um, you know, Ned approaches him and basically says, you know, I'm, I may be your son. And I love that they talk around for a couple lines and then, and then, uh, Steve Zizou is just like, is like, so wait, so we were saying that you're my son, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then um but then when he goes can you excuse me for one second and then just the way he walks and then we'll talk about the music cue later but the the way that life on mars kind of swoops in and just the fact that when he's been, just been you know told this very life-changing aggressive information uh he just kind of very quietly excuses himself and goes and smokes a joint on the head of the boat and then just wanders back and we don't see him react in any sort of outward way but that to me is sort of um you know a very honest and very uh, poignant sort of way of processing like really intense emotions. Well, and real quick, one really interesting note about that scene in particular is that in the Matt Solar Sites book, the Wes Anderson collection, Anderson mentions at one point, in brief anyway, an anecdote that I'd never heard before, but apparently a lot of that scene drew on a real life incident that like had been spoken about anecdotally, where there was an urban legend for a time that the director, John Frankenheimer, mm-hmm. might have been Michael Bay's biological father. Oh and I believe that was discredited, but Anderson said that exact scene was influenced in particular by an episode where the two of them had met at an awards show and just made noncommittal conversation about it. Oh my so God. that's like you're supposed to be my son, right? was supposed to resemble like what would happen if a filmmaker happened upon someone else who might be his child that he never actually (laughs) knew, which is if Life Aquatic is a movie about movies, that's the most Hollywood shit I've ever heard in my life. There's this scene not long after this moment, which is one of my favorites in Life Aquatic, where it's so clever and it's such a brilliant way of looking at how suddenly and unexpectedly your life can change if something like this happens to you um whether it's birth or death or the unexpected arrival of a presumed love child to use the outdated term love <laughs> um, child love child um and, oh, now i just want to sing the supreme song anyway um <laughs> it's when uh, zisu is talking to eleanor 
about can we make him up a bed and he, he just lost his mother and he and she says well f- you know fine that's fine and bring him over here so i can meet him and he goes oh he's right there and you ned has been the shot the entire yeah. time but you just don't see him <laughs> like you don't notice him because he's just standing in the background and the focus is so much on bill murray and angelica houston that it doesn't even register that he's there and then all of a sudden he's there and everything is different i think it's both a, like a really great indicator of his of Zisu's self-absorption and um, lack of you know tact and consideration for the feelings of others um, and also how abrupt this change in his life is I, well and I think if we're gonna t- if we're gonna talk about Murray in the film then you bring up two of the other primary players who are also worth discussion for one Angelica Houston plays one of the best variants of the Wes Anderson maternal figure, which is key in Life Aquatic in particular, but recurs in a lot of his work, whether it's the absence of the mother in Rushmore, or for that matter, Max trying to turn Olivia Williams into a new version of that mother figure. You see that throughout all of the work, but in Life Aquatic in particular, you have dual mothers where you have Angelica Houston as the literal mother, and the the wife of Steve Zissou, and also as the brains behind Team Zissou, as the film takes no shortage of great pains to remind you repeatedly, because with Eleanor, the dramatic climax of the film is able to arrive, and without Eleanor, the Belafonte is siege by pirates. <laughs> so you have like the literal necessity of the mother figure, but then you have Kate Blanchett as a woman who's going to be a mother. And who also gets dragged into the spiral of having to be this maternal figure to both Zisu and Ned at different points in the film. Yeah, I am. Um, one of my favorite lines in all of Anderson's filmography is TM is um, uh, I need to find a baby for this father, which is just an incredible piece of dialogue, but also delivered so brilliantly by Kate Blanchett. I don't know how many people could have made that line work because it would seem so mannered, right? It's so Andersony, but she makes it seem so natural and so honest that in this incredibly extreme and upsetting circumstance, she would have this realization, this sort of shattering realization for herself, and then it would come out backwards. Um, I just think it's a remarkable moment. There's such a, I think the way that Anderson writes women a lot is there's there's sort of a very pragmatic quality to them and a very straightforward and direct quality to them. I love uh, with Eleanor when she he arrives on the island and she immediately informs him that his cat's dead. And then he, that whole conversation is so great. Your cat's dead. Which one? Marmalade. How did it die? A rattlesnake bit its throat out. <laughs> and he's like, Jesus, couldn't you have softened that for me a I just love that exchange and it's I feel like it's such a great summation of their relationship in that she refuses to coddle him and he's someone who desires to be coddled, you know. Well, and that's the thing. When he when he drives 2 hours up a mountain to beg her for money, she immediately just cuts him off with a no yeah. at first. And I think it's really funny how if you're picking up with Zisu at this key phase in his life, you're also by proxy picking up with Eleanor at a point where she's so many miles beyond over all of his shit mm-hmm. that it's palpable. When Zisu attempts at the opening party to introduce her to what it is implied is one of his numerous mistresses over the years, yeah. she just absolutely shuts down because she knows how to wrangle Steve, but she's like him in her own way. She's tired. Mm-hmm. And that exhaustion kind of ca- carries over to 
Miss Winslet Richardson, which is a very Wes Anderson surname because (laughs) Kate Blanchett is also this woman who has her own life that she's been struggling with long before she ever shows up on the beach. Mm -hmm. I'm not leaving this message. It's just, um, it's the kind of thing that pretty much every woman I know has been through at at some point where um, you just have to say the things you need to say, even if you're saying them into a void, because that's the only way to actually move on. Um, yeah, I think that it's she's a heartbreaking figure in the film. And that moment at the end where she tucks the letter into his coffin will just rip your guts right out of you, like a rattlesnake ripping out your throat. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that... One of the things I love about the women, too, is that they have to serve, you know, I mean, they're dealing with men children in a lot of ways. And I mean, I look at Klaus and I love like I think Klaus is a character I thought was almost too cartoony when I first watched the movie. Uh, but then the more I watched it, you see that there's, you know, that there's this like a genuine um, like he has his own bitterness because like he says, he's like this. That's how it used to be, you know, and I think he wants to he's a lot like Steve in just the sense that he wants to be coddled. And I, I, I always find it funny. And this is what Anderson always does very well. But when grown men act like children. And, and uh, just when Klaus is like, uh, you know, thanks a lot for not inviting me, you know, <laughs> or not choosing me. It's like those moments to me are because even as adults, we still feel that way. And it reminds me a lot of um, you're disloyal, you know, from Fantastic Mr. Fox. And that's said by a child, but he would easily have a have an adult say that. And like, and it's such a vulnerable moment when even you mentioned this before, but when Steve says, you know, don't make fun of me, I was only I was just trying to flirt with you. Those are moments where, you know, you see that there is this boyish vulnerability there that can be dangerous in a lot of ways, but also they need someone to take care of them. And, and I think that that's what uh, the women in Life Aquatic, especially, and then in, in Fantastic Mr. Fox really do. Well, and I think that moment when Jane arrives on the beach in Life Aquatic, there's a line that really informs a lot of the performances in the movie as large. Because if we're talking about these inner lives that we catch up with somewhere along the track, then when Zisu's telling Ned we're a pack of strays, in that scene he's only talking about how no one had prior scientific experience before joining the Belafonte's crew. But you could also take it in a larger sense as kind of this nod to the fact none of these people belong where they are. Mm -hmm. They're just a cotillion of people who happen to collide into one another over time. The throwaway line, Klaus was a bus driver. Like, I've always found that hysterical, (laughs) but it also really draws your attention to the fact like Klaus doesn't belong anywhere. Jane sure as hell doesn't belong where she is. Zisu is coasting on old glory and doesn't really belong where he is. Eleanor leaves the film for an hour of it because she doesn't belong there anymore. And there's this sense of not belonging that informs all of the actor's work to some extent or another throughout. And there's such a sweetness, though, to the ensemble, the fact that they do all stick together, like when the intern stays behind, um, like, and then... Uh, you know, Steve's like, why are you still here? I thought you all quit. And he's like, I want to help you find the shark. And that's like his only line in the movie, I think. Or he has like maybe one other. But he like got a hatchet in his arm earlier too. But it's like, you know, I feel like it's such a wonderful ensemble. And the way that the film, the movie is filmed and where we have these long tracking shots where we go from room to room. And in each one, like a different ensemble member is doing something else, whether they're sitting in the tub or in the kitchen or, you know, wherever they are. I mean, Noah, like Noah Taylor is like a really... Uh, remarkable, um, you know, like, like prolific actor. And I kind of love that he's in this movie just with only a couple lines, you know, but then even, um, you know, the characters of Vikram and, uh, and uh, Pele are both just great, like, 
they create such like an interesting texture and they offer so much. I mean, whether musically or like, like Vikram always is always doing business in the background with the lights or various other things. Like, I just <laughs> love that they're always present. They're always busy, but they all exude such sort of, uh, you know, a jovial warmth and a sense of loyalty, which I think is what's so that's what makes, you know, it makes everybody so lovable on the boat is that sense of loyalty. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, I have one little hiccup that I've been wrestling with as we've been, or as I've been revisiting these films so that we can do the podcast, um, which is, I think one of the things I found refreshing about Isle of Dogs is that at no point is a woman forced to bear the unwanted attention of a man who then is rendered in sympathetic terms because he's rejected. Um, that's the, I, I will say that it's never, that's never cast in, um, a heroic light at all. I don't think Anderson ever asks us to believe that Max Fisher, for example, is in the right when he's pursuing Olivia. Um, it's certainly not the case when Zizou is pursuing Cubby. Let's call it Cubby. <laughs> um, we're never meant to think that those behaviors are okay, but there is a certain like subset of the worshipful Anderson populace. Well, I think we kind of teased this point out last week when you and me and Caroline got into discussing Rushmore because there is kind of a gulf between the way a lot of people, particularly young men, interpret Anderson movies and the way in which Anderson himself seems to read those characters. Like, I think there's a lot of empathy extended towards Max Fisher, Mm -hmm. but he's a creep. And I think the film has a handle on that, that even if he's going to grow up into someone who's fine, right now he's kind of a teenage creep. And I think Life Aquatic really casts that sharply because Zisu is very much portrayed as this sad being. Like, there's something deeply immature about the way he courts the women in his life that the film makes into a punchline, but also hits with a lot of bite. Mm-hmm. Well, so wait, is is the... I actually am unfamiliar. Is Do people think that, like, she's she's cold or whatever because she didn't respond to his thing his like him hitting on her i've heard those interpretations that's before. wild to me because that, like, he's such a he's like gross like he's such like uh he's so he acts so entitled around her so one of the scenes in life aquatic that i've always found really telling is just an understated character moment coming from someone else entirely is when he takes ned to the oceanographic society at the beginning which has that amazing hand-painted picture of Zisu, which mm-hmm. is one of the best visual gags in that whole damn movie, yeah. but also has that scene where he can overhear the conversation with his contemporaries shit-talking him in the next room, and the one guy goes, he drunkenly tried to hit on my 15-year-old cousin at a French disco. She was terrified. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's kind of played for a punchline, but it's also like this moment, Zisu's a man in a spiral, but he's also kind of a genuinely shitty creep. Yeah. Well, I think this is, uh, I mean, I've, I was reading some interviews with Anderson and he doesn't say this explicitly necessarily, but you know, his, his parents divorced when he was, when he was like eight years old, I believe. And I think that's why he's always been fascinated by, um, wayward fathers and fathers who are deeply flawed and deeply, you know, have a lot of deep flaws, but he said that he's drawn to characters like that. And he, he's not necessarily out there to redeem them so much as like, maybe just give them a purpose to keep living. It's not like Steve is suddenly not kind of a creep with women by the end of the movie but i think that to show that behavior is just further evidence of his entitlement and his um <clears throat> and just how you know 
he clearly doesn't seem to grasp where he's at in life. And uh, and so I, I guess I'm just very shocked that people would um, would identify with even the love story angle, because to me, what she has with um, Ned is actually really sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just a there. I've encountered a couple of times uh, in conversations with people who are really smart and thoughtful and compassionate um, that there's this romanticization of some of these tragic figures in Anderson when it comes to their interactions with women mm-hmm. um, because they're so often unsuccessful. And I I think that, that that's not what Anderson is saying with those interactions. I think that they're deeply wrong and we're supposed to know that they're wrong. Like there is no universe where Max Fisher faking an accident to get into Olivia Williams' house with ketchup on his face is an acceptable act. Um, that's like really not okay. He basically drives her out of her job because he feels entitled to her affection. Mm -hmm. Um, and Zisu, obviously the, um, the end of the conclusion of that particular story in life aquatic is not quite so stark. I mean, Ned dies, but that's not because Zisu hits on Kate Blanchett. Um, it's, (laughs) uh, it's still super troubling though, to hear people, think that somehow it's sad that that doesn't work out for Zisu. I don't know. It's always rubbed me the wrong way. But to go back to Isle of Dogs, one of the things that I appreciated was that um, Nutmeg, voiced Mm -hmm. by Scarlett Johansson, um, who doesn't have a ton to do, but do tricks, right? Like, it's not a super (laughs) developed character. But she is there to sort of set the record straight about her reputation um, and to willingly engage with Chief on her own terms. And I think that that is pretty cool and a nice change in, um, in the, the usual mode that Anderson takes with those relationships. Well, and I think he started to kind of pull away from that and play with that more and more as his body of work goes on, because you can see that in Darjeeling Limited, how the movie kind of draws a double underline under the fact that Jason Schwartzman just kind of tries to have an emotional affair with this woman who lives on the train until he gets himself thrown off for being an idiot and never really gives her a satisfactory explanation. Or in Fantastic Mr. Fox, where through George Clooney and Meryl Streep, you get this portrait of a guy who is the exact kind of caddish Anderson protagonist that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And then this woman who absolutely refuses to tolerate it. She won't accept it. She's very hardline about the fact our lives are our lives. You and what you want out of life are the outlier here. And I feel like that really speaks to your point a little bit, Allison, because in that movie, you're really teasing out. A, you have George Clooney, who's kind of made self-shared CAD a stock industry for himself. <laughs> but then I think in Meryl Streep's really lovely, often understated line readings in Mr. Fox, you get the other half of that story, which is the wife who has lovingly suffered his shit for a lot of years by the time the film picks up. I love her character in in Fox, and I feel like she really grounds the movie in a lot of ways because it's so chaotic. So otherwise, but I do love those characters. I mean, like for me, the, the, the relationship between Ash and Christofferson is like one of my favorite things. 
I adore like and it's Eric Anderson, Wes Anderson's younger brother, I believe, who plays Christopherson. And just his line deliveries are so, I don't know, simple and striking. And <laughs> he's like not an actor at all. Like because when you look at his his filmography, like it's just Wes Anderson pictures because he does a lot of the behind the scenes art and stuff. And he helps with production design, I believe I could be wrong. But but he um, but I love those characters in Anderson who are sort of like endlessly polite and in their own way punished for that. And that we see that with Christopherson a lot because Ash just hates him so much. But <laughs> and uh, but then the thing is, though, I've, I always relate to those kinds of things because when I was young and I mean, as an adult, you still feel it like when you encounter somebody who you believe to be perfect, you know, they just drive you crazy. And uh, and and I think that there's always the struggle when you're a kid, you're allowed to be mad about that kind of thing. Well, allowed, quote unquote. But when you're an adult, you are very much not, you know, <laughs> you do not. uh uh, express your jealousy or your bitterness towards those people, even though maybe a part of you wants to. Or at least it emerges in very different ways, and you just come off as meaner the older you get. Because yeah. when you're a kid, it's cataclysmic to have someone who is quote-unquote better than you. But by the time you're an adult, you just come off as petty, self-serving, whatever else have you. I mean, Zisu complaining about his movies not being as good as they were anymore, it sounds almost masturbatory when it's coming out of the mouth of a 50-year-old man as compared to this kid where it makes a little more rational sense. Can we talk about the moment where Steve Zissou pulls a gun on a reporter? Because I had forgotten that moment. Yeah. That's like, if there's... There, there's a lot, obviously, in Anderson's films that we wouldn't call realistic. But if there's one bridge that I was like, nope, that's too far. I can't actually believe that that's real. If I, if I was interviewing somebody and they pulled a gun on me, that would be it. I would leave. Like, that's the end of the line. And she they're at sea and there are other complicating factors and she has things that she needs from this experience. And I get that. But yeah, I had forgotten that, oh yeah, Steve Zissou pulls a gun on a reporter. Well, and I think the film really draws that into relief around the time where even she seemed a little surprised that she's going to stay on the Belafonte after the initial uh, mutiny of Anne-Marie and the interns. Like, everyone in that room between Jane, Steve, and Ned all seems surprised that Jane is, Jane is actually going <laughs> to stay. Well, and I think... So we've talked about two-thirds of kind of the dramatic triad at the center of Life Aquatic. So I think we have to hit the third, which is how lovely Owen Wilson is in the Mm -hmm. film. As Ned, as kind of this hapless observer who ambles into and is eventually killed by a Wes Anderson story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a nice it's 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 nice to see what it's it's a very understated role for Owen Wilson and it's weird to say understated because I think part of his whole thing is that there's sort of a breezy casual nature to it. But I mean the thing about Owen Wilson as an actor is he can kind of like it's very easy to watch an Owen Wilson performance and can and tell that he's not really trying all that hard and he doesn't need to try that hard to be fun because he has a very sort of affable nature that's sort of just intrinsic to the way he is and um and i think that's part, one of the things that makes him so good in wes anderson movies but also you can always tell when he is really uh bringing it bring it forward and i think he always does and when he's in a wes anderson film but this is i think probably his best performance in a wes anderson film and i think it's in a role that could otherwise be somewhat you know dull but there's such a boyishness to him um and like just even the moments when he asks if he can call steve dad you know, like, uh, and then he's like, why don't you call me Steve Z? <laughs> that fight that they have later when he's yeah. like, I he's like, I let you call me Steve Z. <laughs> well, and then he has that really, 
that really melancholic response to it, which is just, it's it doesn't not, mean the same thing. Yeah, it doesn't thing. mean the same thing, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I still probably think that my favorite Owen Wilson Anderson performance is Bottle Rocket, but he's super good here. Actually, I um, take it back. You're right. <laughs> it's just, there, there's something about Bottle Rocket that just breaks my heart, but, um, but he's really, really good here. His scenes with Cate Blanchett are really wonderful. Um, that death scene is underplayed so well. Mm-hmm. Like another actor would just have pushed it a little bit too hard. Great, there are great actors who probably would have pushed it a little bit too hard. But no, the way that the second he starts speaking, you know something mm-hmm. is horribly, horribly mm-hmm. wrong. But it's so casual, and the we only really know for sure that that's what's happening is when the water rises above the lens and you see the blood in the uh, water. So good. Like a, it's a gorgeous, upsetting shot. But he's just really terrific. Um, and yeah, I think lends the movie a lot of its sadness because it's such a like a pure, uncomplicated desire that he has. He just wants to get to know his dad, the person he thinks is his dad, because that's all he has now. And the revelation, I really love the um, his delivery when he's talking um, to Cubby about how... Um, his mother had ovarian cancer and it spread and then she chose to end her own life because at first it's this tragic dramatic pronouncement um that seems very anderson obviously it's a theme that he visits in other films but when we get that little extra touch of what exactly happened and how it might have affected him i think it's that's a a terrific scene he handles really well well and i think if we're going to talk about Anderson characters chasing a sense of purpose. That's a good way into Isle of Dogs. And what I would say is like the really standout pair of performances from that by Brian Cranston and Koyu Rankin as Chief and Atari. Yeah. Because in very different respects, they're both hitting on that same theme. And even though they're split by everything from species to language, Chief and Atari are both these characters who are just trying to find, quote-unquote, their place. Because for all of Chief's aggressive insistence in that Brian Cranston bark that's becoming more and more inimitable by the year, all of his insistence that I bite and I'm astray and all these things that he identifies as being, he's still very much searching for more than that. And you can kind of tell that yearning through so many of his early readings, even as he's trying to play the grizzled leader of the pack. Yeah. And I think too, there's such a great, it's not, I mean, obviously Cranston is incredible, but so much of chief's character, I feel like comes through in the animation. And um, I just love the moment when Atari is there and all the other dogs, like when he first arrives and the other dogs are so into him and they're following him. And then you look and chief's like across the way and he's like, just kind of peeking around like a pile of trash like, at him, <laughs> and then trying to act like he doesn't care. And like moments like that, I think are uh, just like really wonderful little indicators of character. Um, and there's so much of that in Isle of Dogs. I was really struck if um, Mr. Fox is, sort of a cousin to Everett from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, then it, I just think it's so wonderful that Chief is a reverse Walter White, right? Like Vince Gilligan's <laughs> famous pronouncement pronouncement that he wanted to take Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface is the opposite here. We start with Scarface and he gets turned into Mr. Chips, right? <laughs> like it's just delightful. And listening to that sort of recognizable, I, I just kept waiting for Chief to say, I am the one who knocks. Um, and watching him sort of, watching all of that get stripped away as he starts to feel a kinship with this boy as he starts to accept affection and love as he starts to take satisfaction from the sense of belonging I think is really great and it's one of my favorite recent 
Cranston performances. Earlier in the show, we talked about the use of bilingual delivery or multilingual delivery rather in Isle of Dogs as like a key storytelling device. But I also think it's a really interesting performance exercise because both with Koyu Rankin as Atari and with Akira Takayama as Major Domo, you have these characters who you can't, at least us as a non-Japanese speaking assemblage of podcast co-hosts, <laughs> we can't make out what's being driven at. So it's all through inflection and delivery and the impact of those line readings where you get a lot of the emotional core and a lot of the meaning out of the film. Yeah. And I guess this is like similar to what I was saying previously, but just with... The design of the characters, I feel like, is so important to understanding them, too. I mean, Major Domo looks like Larch from the Adams Family. Like, they made this guy a pure... Like, he's a representation of pure evil. Like, he's tall, lanky, like, uh, and in a dark suit, his skin is, like, pale, and, like, and uh, his teeth are rotten. It's like he's, like, a pure evil character, whereas, like, Atari is, like um has these like big beautiful eyes and like this whimsical outfit and you know and he keeps getting his head impaled on things <laughs> absolutely and and in all of these deliveries with both of theirs with kunichi nomura's portrayal of mayor kobayashi as well who's again talking about dramatic triads kind of the third point of that they have these moments where they're shouting at each other and an English-speaking audience is by design not supposed to be able to understand what's going on beyond Mm -hmm. a point, but both through context clues and, again, just through the sheer impact coming through in some of these vocal performances, you bridge that where you're speaking to these much broader themes of, as you mentioned, pure evil, pure Mm -hmm. good, the moral conflict in between those two points as seen through Mayor Kobayashi. And I think it forms this very interesting kind of riff on the Anderson formula of people talking constantly over one another, but never really hearing each other. Mm -hmm. And Isle of Dogs feels like one of his most felt and heard movies despite being one of the least comprehensible on its face yeah yeah i mean i think we get an indication of that in tracy walker right and greta gerwig's tracy walker Mm -hmm. because her whole bag is that she's paying attention and being observant and reading between the lines and listening and doing everything that we want good reporters to do and Um, And it ends up being one of the pins on which the whole movie turns. And it's just from being alert and aware and diligent. And I think that that's really cool. And her performance is just great. And I think having that character being like the one expatriate out of the entire cast is really interesting in that respect, too, because she might not be from there, but she knows how to shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. And that means a hell of a lot. Mm hmm. But before we move on out of talking about performances, I want to tie this up how we tied it up last week as well. I want both of you to give me your favorite Wes Anderson side character from this trio of films, because the side character is one of the key hinges of every Wes Anderson movie. Um, I'll start. I mentioned him already, but I loved Major Domo in Isle of Dogs because I love a good villain and I love a villain that plays that can embody certain archetypes. And I just sort of really loved the concept of a villain who is not, you know what I mean? It's hard to explain, but it's like, sometimes I really love a villain who looks like a villain. 
and he looks like a villain. Mm-hmm. And I love how evil he is. I love how mean he is. And I love that it is so easy to hate him and know that he is the one who is really corrupted here. Um, yeah, and I mean, maybe it's just the horror lover part of me, but he looks like a horror character and he's rendered so grotesquely uh, via the um, the stop motion animation. And it's, it was a character that I came out really thinking a lot about, so... Well, I had a hard time picking mine because there are so many great ones and um, in particular would like to extend my apologies to the Bond Company stooge, um, Bud Quartz Bilbell from uh, Life Aquatic. Uh, I also really love Kylie. (laughs) I love Kylie so much. I pay Um, my bills on time. I've always had good credit. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, one of the stand-up characters, I think, of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, But I went with Rat, uh, Willem Dafoe's uh crazed cider addicted ninja villain from fantastic mr fox uh one of those performances where actually a lot like klaus if you couldn't see willem defoe's face you would have no fucking idea right yeah um but it's he's one of those characters where you can only see him as that person in that moment um that rat in that moment i suppose there's like major domo there's no question that he's a bad guy but i love the years old spoilers moment um redemption he has in his final moments and the sort of uh solemn mini funeral he gets as he floats off in the sewer um but i think it's a great vocal performance and a terrific character that really adds a lot of color to a movie where most of the bad things that happen are because the hero makes a wrong move yeah well and i'll always love defoe and anderson just because even by the standards of someone who's one of our most venerated character actors working, he has some of just the most offbeat, off-the-wall character performances yeah. in these films. Mm. Is this an okay moment to say once again for posterity that Willem Dafoe was robbed at the Seuss Oscars? Oh, God, yes. Okay. Yeah, we can never, we sh- cannot and okay. should not ever stop talking about that. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I'm going to go back to Life Aquatic And I have to talk about Jeff Goldblum for a second, because for all of the actors in these three films we've mentioned, we haven't spent nearly enough time talking about what a delightful creation (laughs) Alistair Hennessy is. Because if we're talking about the idea of petty jealousy and going back to Randall's point about Fantastic Mr. Fox, that intimidation of coming across someone who is your superior in life. The way that Steve just resents Alistair Hennessy for being the worst, smuggest embodiment of personal failure imaginable, or Steve's personal failure as represented through this far more successful peer anyway, Mm -hmm. I absolutely adore it. (laughs) I think he is insufferably smug in the best possible way. I think the way that he's an affected Anderson character, like so many affected Anderson characters, but somehow Anderson and mostly through Goldblum's performance manages to convey it in a way where it's like, okay, this is a little too much now. (laughs) I I think it's fantastic. And just little beats, the one that, one of the bits in Life Aquatic, in a movie full of small throwaway lines that crack me up every single time (laughs) I watch it, his flat delivery of, Stephen, are you rescuing me? Yes. <laughs> when he saved in the Hotel Citroën siege and then just goes, fold, before being shot in the shoulder. Yeah, no, I love that. <laughs> that entire delivery is so perfect where he just goes from impressed to surprised to confused and he pivots on each of those within seconds of yeah. one another. Mm-hmm. It, it's fantastic. See, I feel similarly about um, when he's all bandaged up and mostly shirtless and says, wait, 
is that my espresso machine? And then the Bond Company stooge says, we fucking stole it, man. <laughs> like, it just, it makes me laugh every time. It's so delightful. But you know what? His performance in Isle of Dogs, we haven't talked about that either, is very funny. So funny. I heard a rumor that he is the most consistent source of jokes in Isle of Dogs. Yes. Yeah, and in a movie that, yeah, in a movie that often struggles with, you know, when to include those moments of levity and what's overall a pretty bleak affair, and even a lot of the comedy is of a darker hue in Isle of Dogs, he has some of the most laugh-out-loud bits in the whole film. Mm-hmm. Well, there is, yeah, there. Uh, like, one of the things I loved about Isle of Dogs was just the trio. Um, or wait, is it the quartet of uh, Rex King, Boss, and Duke? Mm-hmm. Like, which is uh, Ed Norton, Bob Balaban, Bill Murray, and Jeff Goldblum. Like, those four, uh, the, the way that they... Um, bounce off each other and engage with each other. I mean, you have four like brilliant actors and that's the great thing about Wes Anderson. And this is something I feel like to touch on is people seem to love working with them so much that big actors are more than content to play like small supporting roles. And they bring such like a fun texture to it. Like Mm -hmm. Bill Murray in both Fox and in Isle of Dogs plays, you know, fairly insignificant supporting characters, but he, he has such like a lovely line delivery and he, uh, and so much humanity that he brings to those. And it's just fun to hear him be part of the texture of the film rather than the driving force of it. Or Tilda Swinton. Yeah, Tilda Swinton, yes. Really small, but very funny role. Well, and I think, so if we're going to talk about the ways in which the vocal deliveries help with these animated features in particular, that seems like a good time to jump into the animation itself. Because we've talked about cinematography in Anderson on the last episode. Here it's going to function a little differently because while Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox both very much look like Anderson movies in terms of a lot of the shot compositions, his work with Tristan Oliver, who's the cinematographer on both of the animated features, it unshackles Anderson's camera from the bounds of reality. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of interesting things with that, whether it's the ant farm dioramas of the digging sequences in Mr. Fox, or a lot of what we talked about in the first half of the show, these Im- these long lingering takes in Isle of Dogs of these impossibly gorgeous, sad vistas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he creates a lot of things out of being able to mess around with that and with not having to worry about sets. It's kind of this unfiltered shotgun blast of Wes Anderson's style. Yeah, the distances are so long. Even more so than in Mr. Fox, because we think about the three farms as being pretty far from the tree but they're not really and that's sort the whole source of tension and the further they burrow we're we never really think of it as anything but like fox distances but here gosh that trash island is just enormous and so often characters are spotting other characters are specifically spotting the robot dogs from what seems like a vast vast distance away that what really struck me was how much um emptier it all seemed Absolutely, because if we're if we're talking about Mr. Fox like it's a screwball comedy, then Dogs is a much, much more pensive feature by mm-hmm. comparison. And I think with we talked a lot of last week about the idea of the dioramas it relates to Anderson's work. And with all three of these features, it's incredibly applicable as well, whether it's the literal let me tell you about my boat sequence in Life Aquatic, yeah. or it's just a lot of these animated compositions. Where, I mean, one interesting thing about Isle of Dogs in particular is that whereas in Fantastic Mr. Fox you have these gorgeous moments of the bristling animal fur on the miniatures and a lot of these fine details and there's all this this movement and this panache and this visual noise, 
Isle of Dogs, all the fur looks matted. All of the settings look congested. Mm -hmm. And there's this, for a movie that's so wide open, there's paradoxically enough a much more claustrophobic feel to a lot of the scenes in it. Yeah. Yeah, I, um... It's, it's, you know, and it's just the handmade quality of it is what really resonates. You know, when you watch it, there's no CGI, you know, I mean, obviously some digital effects um, had to be used eventually, but uh, it's like when you watch both Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, you know, you can really see that they did it the old fashioned way. I was reading an interview and, you know, Wes Anderson talked about how when he was working, you know, initially working with some of the, uh, you know, the crew, they, they were going to the more modern methods you know they were that was the first go-to was like well we'll use this and we'll use this and we'll use this and when anderson didn't want to do that i mean he kind of hinted that there was a little bit of annoyance on the part of the crew but then you know i think that they understood he really wanted this to feel distinctly his but also to feel distinctly inspired by you know the primitive methods that he grew up watching that you know to him are what make it magical and what give it more texture you know and that's really important to me too just as a as you know as somebody who I get very much pulled out of movies once I start seeing the pixels on screen, you know, it's uh, it's not done in kind of a smooth manner that I love to see sort of the, uh, you know, the clear work that went into the second by second of it all. Mm-hmm. From one of his interviews with Matt Solar Sites, Anderson talks about this exact thing at one point. And he talks about how what appeals to me more are these old-fashioned techniques. Old-fashioned special effects tend to appeal to me, as does the challenge of getting it in the camera. There's a handmade feeling to it. There's an imperfection that doesn't really qualify as imperfection because it's the real thing. Which not only is Anderson's work in microcosm in a lot of respects, perfection made out of imperfection, but I mean, both thematically and visually, he plays around with those ideas. But I think especially here, the there's a tactile quality to all of these fantasy worlds that mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. I don't know if this is also true of Isle of Dogs, but I would be um, completely unsurprised if it were. But what I really love about um, the vocal performances to, in Fantastic Mr. Fox is that they feel so textured. And th- this is anecdotal. I don't know if it's confirmed in the Zoller Sites book. Mate, Dom, maybe you would know. Um, but I have sort of seen a couple of places that Anderson said that he brought his actors into outside locations, recorded in the woods or in an attic or in a cave to get the sense that to give a greater sense of place to get more playfulness out of the performers i would be really unsurprised if he didn't do the same thing with isle of dogs because there's this incredible um texture to the sound stories as well both vocally and in what's going on in the score well yeah with mr fox he absolutely did do that he wanted he wanted it to feel like these people were actually inhabiting the same space which is the issue with so many animated movies i mean outside of pixar You watch a lot of animated films in the year, I mean, as critics, all three of us do, where it's just everyone was clearly in a booth doing their 10 second crutzity the clown pitch for the sake of the poster. (laughs) And then that's pretty much that. But with these Anderson movies, they feel like fully formed performances. Mm -hmm. I'd absolutely agree. And I think there's something really to be said for, again, the tactile quality of even 
just that vocal warmth, that stylistic warmth. Yeah. Schwartzman talks about digging in the dirt for in one interview I was reading. Like he literally, literally recorded him digging through actual dirt while he was delivering his lines. The idea of just like George Clooney, Meryl Streep, and Jason Schwartzman out in the field tearing <laughs> through dirt next to each other is deeply satisfying to me, I have to say. I love that. I would also watch that movie. Coen Brothers, get on it. Live yes. action version. With all of these movies, what you see, whether it's Robert Yeoman's work on Life Aquatic, who, again, is the cinematographer who's worked with Anderson on all of his live-action features, whether it's his work there, whether it's Tristan Oliver's with the animated films, there's a way in which movement is captured differently, it functions very differently, because... That he can put, I mean, for one, he can put somebody anywhere, which is just something you can do with a figurine in a way you can't when you're blocking out a scene. It's just, there are literal impossibilities of human beings in physical space that you can kind of jump through with this. But I also think that in a lot of respects, these whip pans and these hard zooms and a lot of the Wes Anderson visual trademarks are amplified by the fact that he can create space anywhere he wants, whether it's those open Isle of Dogs spaces, whether it's the enclosures of a lot of scenes in Fantastic Mr. Fox, whether even it's that moment with the jaguar shark at the end of Life Aquatic, where they're all trapped in what's basically a tin can via deep search, and Kate Blanchett asking, are we safe here? And there's a palpable terror to that, even though they're all in a submarine in what is very clearly a Rankin and Bass claymation diorama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think um, that's a, a really thoughtful choice and that the option to sort of blend those worlds is um, one of my very favorite things about Life Aquatic. And so if we're talking about kind of the dream worlds this week that Anderson constructs. I'll find my way out with this. <laughs> what is the most indelible dreamlike image in the film? And before we jump into that, I want to point out we all chose scenes from the Life Aquatic. Yeah, I think that I think the reason they stand out as dreamlike images is because you know, Life Aquatic out of these three movies is the one that, you know, really blends live action with animation and that makes that those moments of animation resonate that much more and make them that much more magical because they stand out so starkly and this is a world this is a world that is built around the wonders that live underwater and the magic that lives underwater and as somebody who is kind of obsessed with the things that live at the bottom of the sea personally although i tend to uh uh indulge it more from a horror perspective because i'm 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 convinced that monsters live under there but uh but i I love that it's rendered in sort of such uh dreamlike tones you know whether it's color or just like the size or everything but like when klaus's nephew for me the that that indelible images uh when klaus's nephew gives steve uh what is it a crayon pony fish uh, a little seahorse in a little plastic bag he gives it to steve um, right at the beginning of the movie and it's like it's just like this little reminder it's like you know it's the first time we really see that little bit of animation and it's and it's for Steve I think a little reminder of what got him doing this in the first place and what and the beauty that is to be found there and I love it when he gets to the fight with the guy and the back starts leaking so he he, uh, he transfers the thing to a little uh, champagne flute and it's uh, just a really lovely little moment to me that is you know of another world Mm-hmm. Exquisite specimen. <laughs> um, uh, so my pick from the Life Aquatic was uh, the Rubber Tide. 
um, which I think is an interesting counterpoint to yours, Randall, because it's another moment where Steve kind of gets confronted with how deadened he's become to this thing that he used to be so passionate about and love so much and to his own lack of wonder because they he wakes up Ned at 4.30 in the morning, whatever time it is, and, um, and they go out to the beach to see this sort of tragic swarm of beached jellyfish glowing in these beautiful pastel colors and it's the most beautiful sad thing and they're filming it and he's so matter of fact about it and it's just another footage opportunity and then Ned asks why they look that way and he gets this look on his face like oh right yeah this is an amazing thing I should probably explain that answers the question then says good ad lib that was a good ad lib (laughs) yeah I love Um, that but that that's always looked to me like um, like an Anderson movie came to life in a place I recognize. Like it sprouted from the earth and all of a sudden I was there too. Um, and yeah, that's it's a movie full of beautiful images, but that one's my favorite. That scene also has quite possibly my single favorite throwaway line from that entire movie, which is, he doesn't even know how to hold a boom. Yeah. <laughs> Which combined with Owen Wilson haplessly yelling with sound reduction headphones on is just a masterpiece of comedy all around. Yeah. Well, and for me to top it off, I mean, I'm going with the image we've talked about several times already, the Jaguar shark, Mm -hmm. which first of all introduced a whole generation of sad people to Seeger Rose, Yeah. but also is in a film full of these stop motion creations, the most devastating of all of them because... It's this beautiful, shiny being in total darkness, which we've already kind of read into the thematic implications of that. But there's also the fact that there is this genuine sense of grandeur he manages out of it. And again, all it is is a stop motion diorama. But even so, there's just this beauty and this transcendence to that entire set piece that takes it out of the realm of animation and into this is just great, great cinema storytelling all around. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, that's actually, I'm I'm killing it with the segues this week, you guys. I'm feeling really good about this. So if we're talking about sight and we're going to bring sound into it, that's a good way out into talking about the sounds of the films, our final topic of discussion for this week. Because Life Aquatic is awash in gorgeous music, both composed and found. Um, you have Sigaros over that sequence. You have the zombies over Ned's funeral yeah. and all the lilting beauty of that entire sequence. And it's actually, the that song gets me the most, not during the All Hands Bury the Dead, which is beautiful, don't get me wrong. But in that scene where Zisu is dragging Ned's body back to the shore right yeah. when the song kicks in, there's something so gut-churning about that where it's just like he's back on shore He's away from the water. He's away from everything he's comfortable with. And he's cradling what might be his dead son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously we can't talk about the music and the life aquatic without talking about David Bowie. Um, And we want to talk about dreamlike and about a sense of wonder. I mean, I feel like he's the perfect pairing for this film. And um, the covers that pop up throughout are some of my, not just my favorite Bowie covers, but some of my favorite covers just ever. Yeah. This Starman cover is incredible. Um, it just, I just think it's such a lovely choice and it lends, lends itself to that dreamlike quality there. Hashtag on topic. And I feel like he just uses, like, I love that he uses both the covers of Bowie, but also 
other Bowie songs. Mm-hmm. Like it, it closes with um, um, Queen Bitch. And like, I love that as just sort of this curtain call. But, you know, Anderson, he always uses such great songs to close out his movies. Like, cause he tends to have these curtain calls at the end where it's like a school play and everybody kind of comes on stage for their bow. And we get Ooh La La by uh, The Faces in Rushmore, which is so perfect. And then we get Queen Bitch in Life Aquatic as, you know, Steve walks down and everybody kind of joins him one by one. And we see the intern has gotten his own red cap and like everybody, you know, is kind of involved in that. And I just love that. I think it's such a lovely way to end a movie. And um, but then also uh, just I mentioned this earlier, but the use of Life on Mars, both the cover because we hear the cover as well. But when he walks away, just like because he's Bill Murray's playing it so restrained after he has that first conversation with Owen Wilson. But then when he walks away and it immediately goes into the chorus, like the soaring chorus of Life on Mars. And that just represents like what a torrent of emotion is like flooding through his body at that moment. It's such like a beautiful, beautiful way of using music. Well, and he's always dabbled in these like mid 20th century mod rock sounds throughout all of his work whether it's the kinks whether it's bowie whether it's any of the bands he tends to return to there's the fantastic use of iggy pop during the pirate battle oh i love that but i also think again he in this case you have the stark juxtaposition of those kind of snappier rock songs with the mark mother's boss score which is maybe my favorite personally of any of mother mother's boss arrangements for anderson yeah because I mean, for one, it's the most Mark Mothers boss score in the world. It's all chip sounds. It's all kind of, it's a little vintage, but in the way that electronic sounds have a ceiling for how vintage they can really be. So it ends up feeling very much like an old Jacques Cousteau exploration special. And it, it perfectly sets a sense of place like any of the great scores. And I even think that with, um, with respect to the curtain call, as you pointed out, Randall, one of the bits I really love is at the end of Fantastic Mr. Fox, where you have the Bobby Fuller Four's letter dance as they all go off doing the best jerkiest stop motion dances yeah. in the world. And they're all doing them in, in almost these curtain call chorus lines mm-hmm. of a sort. And that's kind of a visual he po- that pops up in the film a few times throughout Fantastic Mr. Fox. But that moment in particular is just so serene because it's celebratory, even as there's that slow pan out over the credits where they're like trapped in this septic linoleum covered industrial space. Yeah. So there's still kind of this rueful irony that's at odds with much of the movie. Whereas Life Aquatic, I think that entire final walk down the pier is probably one of his most serenely, truly happy images in any of his movies. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, as much as I love that track in Fantastic Mr. Fox, and also I feel like we should tip our hats to Jarvis Cocker's amazing Petey's song. Yes. Right? What a damn delight. And, and, and Mr. or the Bean going like, it's a bad song, Petey. You wrote a bad song. <laughs> feels very much like the Roger Miller songs that got written for um, the for Robin Hood for Disney's Robin Hood um, I just love it but my favorite has to be the use of the Beach Boys heroes and villains yes which not only sets the tone perfectly it's that like rollicking sweeping shimmering thing that just sucks you into this world but then it's really useful it's like a time lapse right like it takes us from this first adventure that Mr. and Mrs. Fox are on to having Ash and moving forward in time. It's just brilliant. Like it's perfect, perfect. 
perfect use. I mean, I love that song anyway, but the, it could not be better deployed. The way he even uses the coda for that dramatic scene change yeah. at the end. Yeah, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And that seems as good a way as any to jump into Fantastic Mr. Fox, because even though you see the transition to Alexandra Desplat here instead of Mark Mothersbaugh, you very much have the same sense of play that Mothersbaugh's scores evoked in a lot of Anderson's earlier work, because you have those staccato plucked strings from Rushmore popping up again. And in general, Desplaga does a really good job of kind of connecting the early Anderson sound with a very, very different kind of Anderson movie. Yeah. And uh, I also just want to call out the use of Rolling Stone Street Fighting Man because it's just it's such like a (laughs) jolt of fun in that movie. And it's almost jarring, you know, because it almost feels like you shouldn't be hearing that mod rock when you're watching this animated children's film. But it's like, you know, it just it Wes Anderson knows how to make it. It just fits the tone of his movie so well. Mm hmm. And especially when you look at Isle of Dogs in comparison to these two films, it sounds nothing like anything else that Anderson has done to date in much the same way it doesn't quite look or feel like Anderson's other movies. Because instead of Mark Mothersbaugh, you're working with Alexandre Desplat here again, who won the Academy Award for Best Original Score for the Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. And here he's working with much more traditional Japanese sounds. There's a lot of kettle drumming humming through the score there's this very abrasive tone to a lot of it yeah i love 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 the drum work which uh i believe comes from uh karu watanabe uh and it is like they have basically these three sumo wrestler types uh playing the drums and they animate that and that music is like really stirring really exciting and really sets the stage you're like this is going to be an adventure yeah it makes it feel really epic Well, and to that exact point, one thing that I thought was really interesting was how some of the audio cues throughout the film are compositions recycled from Akira Kurosawa's work, Mm -hmm. Seven Samurai in particular. And I think like that sets a very specific tone, but also it's interesting because in keeping with a lot of the film's play with multiculturalism, I mean, there's arguably no more recognizable Japanese filmmaker, at least in America, than Akira Kurosawa. And I think invoking his work very directly like that really kind of situates Isle of Dogs in that same way. Yeah. And then there's also a psych pop, uh, one psych pop song for I Won't Hurt You by the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. So he's still got a little bit of that old, that old Anderson in him. <laughs> Great band name. But I think what's interesting is that even with that one significant needle drop, which almost feels anachronistic in the movie yeah. to a point. Yeah. Even with that case, it's a much slower song. It's It sets a much more somber tone than a lot of the pop songs he's invoked over the years in his work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that kind of, that sobriety carries over to a lot of the style. And it's just, I was really fascinated with it because it's a set of sounds that Anderson has never really played with before. And it sets a very distinguished tone for Isle of Dogs in particular. But... With that having been said, I do believe that we're starting to draw to the close of filmography. Do either of you have any closing points you would like to make on the dream worlds of Wes Anderson? Well, I'll say that this was uh, an interesting episode for me to be on. These uh, Life Aquatics has always been one of my favorites, but I've never been a huge person that's been into animated films. So Fox was a movie I'd only seen once before. So revisiting it with fresh eyes and sort of an analytical approach was really fun for me. And same with Isle of Dogs. I I love both of them and they're both great. And they're movies that I feel like, you know, even Isle of Dogs I really liked, but I probably wouldn't, um, I don't know, like 
I'm definitely going to see it again because my wife wants to see it. And uh, but I think I was approaching it a lot differently, differently because I knew I was going to be talking about it um, than I would have otherwise. I mean, for me, the movies that were always uh, really pivotal with Anderson were Battle Rocket Rushmore and probably Darjeeling Limited, which is a movie I absolutely adore. And um, so it was cool for me to talk about these three, which are movies that I've always loved, but I felt like I really, it was, it was, it was very freeing and very uh, illuminating to approach them analytically. Yeah, I was really glad to revisit Fantastic Mr. Fox in particular. Um, I do love an animated movie. I'm a giant Disney nerd. Um, And when I first saw it, I enjoyed it, but it's the kind of film that you can kind of let wash over you. Um, It's so lovely to sink into that it's easy to kind of disengage from the critical part of your brain. And so looking at that one in particular with a new lens was a really terrific experience. Well, thank you both for joining me and thank you at home or wherever for <laughs> listening to Filmography Episode 2. Now, where can the goodly listeners find both of you on the internet? Um, I am a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. I do a lot of stuff there. I'm also a pretty regular contributing writer to the AV Club and the guardian and so you can find me in those pages occasionally and you can also find me on twitter where i post sporadically because i'm not good at technology at randall colburn and uh yeah you can find me at consequence of sound obviously as well as the av club and RogerEbert.com, where i primarily write about television um, you can also catch me on, in addition to TV party, the podcasts, Podlander Drunkcast and Outlander podcast, which is exactly what it sounds like and debating Dr. Who, which is also exactly what it sounds like, but considerably less drunk. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Allison Shoe. And I forgot to plug the losers club again. Please listen to our Stephen King podcast. It's called The Losers Club, and it's pretty great. I can say firsthand that Randall and Allison and everyone else involved with The Losers Club do the kind of meticulous work to which all podcasts should aspire. So please (laughs) give it your love. And thank you for giving this show your love as well. Uh, Once again, please, please leave us a review. Share our show on iTunes or Podchaser. Any notices we can get ratings reviews whatever you can do to help it matters immensely more than you could possibly realize unless you're someone who podcasts and then you get exactly how the sausage is made (laughs) but we will be back next week on april 6th with our final episode the dramatist where again we'll be discussing wes anderson as seen through the darjeeling limited and hotel chevalier the grand budapest hotel and the royal tenenbaums in addition Consequence Podcast Network is starting a new show called Discography, which, as it sounds like, will be the musical version of this show you're listening to. On April 13th, Discography will premiere with a six-part series on Frank Zappa's work, featuring an interview with Zappa documentarian Alex Winter. In addition, you can talk to me at Mayer on Twitter. Please reach out to me. Let me know if you like the show, if you didn't like the show, if you didn't like the show, maybe just DM me instead of making a public show of it. But whatever. <laughs> Anything's fine. We're just happy for the audience engagement. You can find Consequence of Sound on Twitter at Consequence and on Facebook at Facebook slash Consequence of Sound. Filmography is a Consequence Podcast Network production. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Chicago, Illinois, and recorded and engineered by Dominic Suzanne Mayer. 
Thank you to Allison and Randall for joining me. Thank you to all of you for listening. And we will see you next week for the thrilling conclusion. Consequence Podcast Network.